0: Well, that's great. It's good to see the place full again. Well, it was full. (laughs) Half of them are back there now, but it's brilliant, isn't it? It's it's fantastic to see uh, what can happen when God brings people back together physically once more. We've never been apart in some ways. And it's, it's, it's great, isn't it, that uh, even when we've had to be separated from one another and numbers have been limited and we've had to do stuff on Zoom, and, and I know we're still doing it in the evening. But uh, even through that, it's brilliant that the unity that, that comes through Jesus, Jesus taught us how to be a family, is still there. And it's strengthened, in fact, isn't it, by the way that that goes. Well, we're we'll carrying on with the series we've been doing uh, in Acts, and uh, we've reached um, Acts chapter 20. And we're going to read some verses from uh, verse 13 onwards. Um, (coughs) Let's read then from verse 13 of Acts chapter 20. Uh, You might remember in the last bit, there's been this uh, story about Eutychus falling out of the window, falling down to the ground, and uh, um, Paul uh, restoring him, and uh, the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Then we move on from there. Verse 13. We went on a to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Kiphos. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. For he was in a hurry to reach uh, Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must learn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning. Eat you night and day with tears. Now I commit to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them. And prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Okay, so this morning I've called the talk Avoiding Ephesus because that is exactly what Paul's doing here. He's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, and he's bypassing one of the biggest cities that he's, he's ever had anything to do with. I don't know if, uh, like me, your eyes kind of go blank when you read about Assos, Mytilene, Chios, Samos, Miletus, and you think, oh yeah, I know about that. Um, so it's, it's worthwhile, I think, just right at the start to have a look at the map and see what's happened. Paul's just come across from Macedonia and Achaia, <laughs> modern-day Greece, and he's crossed into modern-day Turkey. He's come to Troas. And he's on his way back to Jerusalem in the bottom right-hand corner of that map. But he does it quite slowly. From Troas, he walks down to Assos. That's 20 miles. So Paul gives himself a 20-mile walk while his companions get on a boat. And they pick him up at Assos. And then they go on from there to Lesbos. And uh, the capital of Lesbos is a place called Mytilene. So that's the word you actually get in the chapter. From there, the next little island down is Chios. And they don't actually call in there, they just uh, sort of stay off the coast of Chios. The next day, though, we'll go on to Samos. And from Samos, it's on to a city called Miletus. Now, Miletus is quite a big port with three harbours, very big, bustling place. Probably been there a lot in the past. And it was a pretty obvious place to go to, to get a boat to Jerusalem. But why go in all those little bits? Because you can see um, uh, that just in from Miletus, there's the city of Ephesus. And that was a port in those days. And the way to go, if Paul had wanted to get to Jerusalem in a hurry, would surely have been to go to Ephesus, just hop on a boat and go straight to Jerusalem. He doesn't do that. Why? Well, one reason is he wants to talk to these people here, uh, the Ephesian elders, to whom he's got some things to say, because he doesn't think he's ever going to see them again. But he could have gone to Ephesus to do that. Why didn't he do the obvious thing? Supposing last week you'd wanted to go from Exeter to London by train. There are two ways you could do it. Uh, Ashley knows more about this than I do. But there's a line that goes through uh, Waterloo, to Waterloo. And as you can see, on uh, Saturday the 17th, departing at 7.25, you would arrive in three hours and 24 minutes. And you'd have stopped at every little station on the way through. Feniton, St James, all sorts of different places that you wouldn't want to stop at, and you'd eventually get to London and think, uh, is it time for my old age pension yet? Um, because it just takes so long. And there's another journey that you can do which goes the other way to Paddington, and this one departed at 7.53, oh, you get 20 more minutes in bed, not bad, and it arrives in two hours and 15 minutes. So an hour and nine minutes. Now, what Paul was doing was the equivalent of taking the Waterloo train, rather than the sensible one. So why was he doing that? Why did he want to stop at all of these little islands? Why would Paul want to avoid a city where, first of all, he had lots of friends, because he'd been there for nearly three years, you might remember, where he'd stayed so long and built so many contacts and had so many things he wanted to remember, and third, where he'd had remarkable success. Do you remember him taking the lecture hall of Tyrannus earlier in our series, and... uh, Lecturing there through the day, and people from all over the province of Asia coming, hearing the gospel, and being converted. Why would you want to avoid that city? Well, there are various answers. Um, Ephesus was a massive place. This is just a slide from a lecture series I do on Ephesus in Bible school sometimes. I just have a few facts about it. It was the second largest city of the empire after Rome, it was a busy port. Uh, It was the end of the Silk Road from the Middle East and from Asia, where silk precious uh, fabrics were brought to the port of Ephesus to be shipped straight to Rome. It was was one of the most important places in the world. It was the metropolis of Asia, everybody called it. And that meant wherever you went throughout the province of Asia, all of the, the milestones told you how far you were from Ephesus. It's like Paris in France, you know. In France, they say all roads go road to Paris. Well, in the province of Asia, all roads led to Ephesus. It was a chief city of the Lycus Valley. It was a centre of medicine with a massive academy. And some of the greatest doctors of those days, Rufus and Soranus, came from there. It was where the common games of Ape was held every four years. Not like the Olympics, dotting about here, here and everywhere and now in Tokyo. No, it was always in Ephesus because it was such an important place. And so you could go on down. Why would Paul want to avoid a city like that? Well, I think the answer is, 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 is maybe more than one thing. Maybe there were three reasons. The first thing is I thought he was in a hurry. He wanted to get to Jerusalem quickly, And uh, that was for various reasons. First of all, the vow had to be kept. He had made a vow back a few chapters before in Kincrea on, on the other side in Greece. And th- this vow involved shaving off all his hair. Now, probably the kind of vow it was meant that that hair had to be taken within a certain period of time and left in the, on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And so he was in a hurry to do that before he was out of time. Second, there was money that had to be delivered. Paul had been living an enormous collection around all of the churches. You read about it in the Corinthians, for example, uh, for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And he was taking a lot of money with him, and he wanted to get it to Jerusalem in a hurry. Um, that's why, if you, you look back at uh, verse 4 of the chapter, he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. People from all of the different churches that had given money were there just to make sure that none of it went missing and to make sure that Paul wasn't sort of hit over the head some night in a, 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 a dark alley and lost the, the lot were a lot of people there. Because how do you transfer lots of money in those days? You send a lot of people with it. <laughs> and so and maybe that's another reason that Paul didn't want to hang about. He wanted to get past. He was in a hurry. But second, I think uh, more than that, um, he knew that Ephesus was a dangerous place. He'd probably been in prison there for quite a long time. We read between the lines of Second Corinthians a couple of weeks ago and, and, and saw that that was the case. That Paul... <coughs> was in in a situation where everybody seemed to be against him. You might remember that slide, the slide from that talk, where we talked about the pagans were against him, the Jews were against him, and even the Christians turned against Paul, or some of them anyhow. And Ephesus was a pretty dangerous place. He still had lots of enemies there, and so he might not have wanted to spend too much time there. But another reason, oops, come on, that's it. Oh dear, I don't know what's happened here, but sorry. Another reason I think that he didn't want to spend time in Ephesus was he didn't want to be distracted. He needed time alone. And that's why he walked, I think, from Troas down to Assos, 20-mile walk on his own, because he needed some time away, even from the guys who were with him, perhaps to think about what he was going to do next, perhaps to think about what he was going to say to the Jews elders, perhaps just to prepare for the experiences that lay ahead of him, because he'd been having all of those, those uh, prophecies given to him that there were hard times and imprisonment ahead. He had to get himself ready. Uh, Matthew Henry, the great commentator of the uh, 17th century, said this about this passage. In doing God's work, our own wills, and those of our friends must often be crossed. We must not spend time with them when duty calls us another way. And so Paul decided for all of those reasons, the only thing to do was to avoid Ephesus and to go, and go in and pieces down through the islands until he got to Miletus. And then for Miletus, He'd call the elders of the church in Ephesus and uh, the surrounding area and he'd get that group of elders together and he'd give them his final talk to them. So avoiding Ephesus allowed him to meet with them in Miletus, and that's really what he was doing here. But this passage isn't just about avoiding Ephesus. It's about reminding Ephesus to his, About reminding them what he had been to them, what he had taught them, what example he'd shown them and what he'd left with them. And there was a reason for reminding them, and that reason was that he had to warn Ephesus as well. It wasn't all going to be plain sailing. Just because God had brought them all into an incredible family, broken down the middle wall of partition between the Jews and the Gentiles, and made them all one, it wasn't necessarily going to stay that way unless they worked in it. And now he wasn't going to be there to help them anymore. They had to take the responsibility of leadership, these guys and my leaders themselves, so let's look at the reminding bit and then the, the um, <coughs> excuse me, the, the the warning bit. Reminding Ephesus, what does he remind them? Well, you see that first of all, he reminded them how he had lived, and he, he starts off by saying, um too sorry." He starts off by saying, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. I serve the Lord, verse 19, with great humility and in tears. And that's how service is effective. If you want to be a servant of God who does something big, like Paul had done in Ephesus, which remained the, the, the center of Christian evangelism and witness in Asia for hundreds of years after he'd gone, if you want to do something like that in the midst of a, a pagan, occult city, and your service has not got just to be service. It's got to be done with humility and it's got to be done with tears. There's a lot of Christian service that's done in a look at me kind of a way. <laughs> where people are doing good things for God, but they're shouting about them too. And they see themselves as important. They see themselves as somehow vital to the task of God in the world. You will never achieve anybody if you let your head get anything if you let your head get inflated like that. And the greatest servants of God have always been the humble ones, the ones who didn't want much of themselves. I remember the, the first day I met Luis Palau, the Argentinian evangelist. You know, he was, he was uh, well-known at that, that point. He'd just come to Britain. Fantastic things had happened in Latin America through his ministry. And uh, he'd just come to Europe to do some preaching. And he'd been invited to the Evangelical Alliance to meet the Evangelical Alliance Council. Now I was on the Evangelical Alliance Council, I'd just been appointed to it, I felt very young, I was about 50 years younger than anybody else that was there, and I felt very scared because they were all sort of distinguished people and stuff, and I was coming from Swindon. It was bad news because the train was late. (laughs) So I arrived at this place and went into the Evangelical Alliance uh, headquarters in London and uh, there was this room full of people and I could see some distinguished people uh, from all kinds of of denominations all over the place. Whoa, what am I doing here? And this little guy, smaller than anybody else, he was just uh, standing up against the wall watching what was going on, Um, came across to me, and he said, Hi, I'm Lewis, who are you? You are Lewis Palau, oh boy, oh help, get me out of here. But, you know, he was just so humble, he was just so friendly, I couldn't believe it. And although the meeting was initially about him, they were all talking to one another. And he and I had a lovely chat for about ten minutes. And then the next week, actually, I was at Spring Harvest. And uh, I worked for Youth for Christ in those days, and I was one of the the organisers uh, of Spring Harvest. But I I had nothing to do with the late-night events. And there was one late-night event, and Louis Palau, of course, was one of the big speakers there. And he was being interviewed in his late-night event. I was standing right at the back of this room. That, it must have had more than a 1,000 people in it. and There was hardly any room. And Louis Palau came to the end of his interview on the stage. And uh, he was just ushered off the stage by his minders. And they made a way through the crowd to the door where I was standing. And he just, they were just helping him get through the door. And suddenly he saw me there. And we'd only met once. And only for a few minutes. And it was, John, John, so good to see you, my brother. Huh? Wow. And the more I saw of him, the more I realised that was absolutely true. You know, there was lots of publicity, there was lots of razzmatazz. His his picture was on on, on uh, big hoardings all over the place. But the guy was humble. Humility is at the heart of effective service for God. And the other thing is tears. And Paul says, "Remember, I cried about you guys. You broke my heart sometimes." And effective service is going to be like that. It's not all going to be upward stuff. Sometimes there are real reversals, and you just have to read the book of Acts to find out about that, don't you? The apostle Paul, the apostle Peter, great names, statues of them, stained glass windows, all the world now, but they knew hardship, they knew heartbreak, they knew how hard it could be. And so Paul reminded them of how how he had lived, because that was the way that they were going to have to go if they wanted to be effective. And he reminded them of how he preached. And that's the verse uh, verse uh, um, uh, twenty twenty seven that says, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Why would we hesitate? Well, I think it's because sometimes proclaiming the whole will of God means saying some tough things to people. It means saying things you'd rather not say. And you'd rather leave it to somebody else and stand back and let them take the flack. But sometimes you be faithful to the gospel. And sometimes just because you love the other person, you've got to go in there and say things you really don't want to say. I've twice had to sit down with young guys in my youth group and say, listen, you're living a double life, aren't you? You're a homosexual, and you're living a gay life and a Christian life at the same time. Your parents don't know anything about it, and we have to work out what we're going to do about it. I tell you, those conversations where I was trying to, to to be loving and caring, and yet, you know, I say, look, this can't go on. Just for everybody's good, we've got to be open and honest and real about this whole thing. It was one of the toughest conversations, I think, of my life. And sometimes, if you're willing to say the tough things, then you make an impact. And if you let them slide by, you're not. He was always willing to put himself out. Do you remember, he's, he, he, he talks here about how he taught not only... Uh, publicly, but also, verse 20, from house to house. Do you remember Ephesus? We talked about what he did in Ephesus, and we looked at his daily schedule. You might remember this slide from a few weeks ago as well. From uh, six o'clock until eleven o'clock in the morning, he'd be at work with Aquila and Priscilla probably, making pence, sales, that sort of thing. Then from eleven, when Tyrannus gave up lecturing, he'd take over the lecture hall and do five hours in a lecture hall. It was pretty hot, uh, already because it's full of hot air from what Terence had been doing and uh, all of the people that have been in there and th- so until four o'clock he was teaching in the lecture hall and from four o'clock until bed-, bed he was teaching from house to house now I'm sure he took a time off for an ice cream occasionally but nonetheless you can see just how hard he was working and so he he, he talks about this and says you know that I kept on going that way and you the, the, the John Stott commented about this, that it made 3,120 hours of gospel art. But that's just in Tarana's lecture hall. There was all the other stuff he did, the uncounted stuff. And sometimes it's not the public things you do in ministry that cost most and bring the most effective results. Sometimes it's a cup of tea with somebody, the quiet chat by the side of the road, the time when you get up in the middle of the night just to rescue them when their car's broken down, whatever, those kinds of things make an enormous impact for God. And so there are two sides to it. There's a public side, and there's a house-to-house side. But that's not all that Paul talks about. He also talked about what he said. He talks about the gospel he preached, and he talks about three things in it. This is... is <coughs> I shouldn't have brought such a small Bible. I can hardly read it here. Um, this is uh, where he talks about the message uh, that, 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 that uh, he, he, he has been teaching them. And he says... Uh, I have declared in verse 21 to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Three things in there, aren't there? First of all, it's a message about everybody. It's about everyone, Jews and Greeks. Everybody belongs in the church of God. Second, it's a message about, this thing is not clicking properly, it's a message about turning round about repentance, about going in a different direction. And the gospel is not the gospel if it doesn't point at your lifestyle and say, this has to change and that has to change if Jesus is really going to be Lord in your life. But it's also about trusting Jesus. It's about not trying on your own to make yourself right with God but allowing Jesus to do it for you. And those three vital elements, said said Paul, have got to be there in the message. That's what I preach to you. A message that doesn't leave everybody out, anybody out. It's inclusive for everybody. A message that it's about turning around and living a different life. And a message that talks about not doing it yourself, but letting God do it through faith in you. So that's what he said. And then warning Ephesus. He said, that's the kind of life I've lived. That's the kind of leadership I've shown. You guys have got to do the same now. You've got to take over. You've got to have the tears and the disappointments. You've got to show the humility. You've got to take the, 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 the long haul view of this whole thing, and you will see God working through you too. But war, but be warned, it's not going to be simple. And I think in the last section, where he gives that warning, uh, he talks about three characteristics of good leadership. And the first word is, you know your limitations. He says, listen, I know that you're not going to see me again. I've got no more to do with the situation. I've reached the limit of what I can achieve. Now, sometimes we try to make our own reputation permanent. Get a church named after us, build a statue to me. Start my own evangelistic organization or, or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with some of those things if that's, if that's what God leads you to. But sometimes we try to make things permanent. Sometimes uh, I'm talking as if everybody's a, a sort of major evangelist or something like that. Sometimes it happens on a small scale, doesn't it? The older guy who will not leave the leadership of the church because in his 80s now and that's the only place where anybody listens to him anymore and it's the only place he's got some power and so he's not going to leave the eldership until he drops dead. I've been in churches where there's been suffering because of some of the... The the attempts of people just to make themselves permanent. And you need to realize that any of us are just servants of God for a while. We do what we can for our own team, our own day. But then our day passes and somebody else comes in our place. So realizing the limitations was going to be important. Paul recognized his. I've done mine. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Now I'm going. I'm handing the baton on to you. And being willing to do that is the first thing, it seems to me, that a leader needs to grapple with. The second thing, though, is the the kind of leadership you show. Exercise your leadership. Don't just sit there passively. He talks about um, the fact that people are going to come in from two directions, who are going to spoil the church if they possibly can. There are going to be people, wolves from the outside, who are going to come in with all sorts of fancy ideas that teach new things and change and distort the church. And then he says, chillingly, also of your own selves shall men arise. Trouble can come from outside in or from inside out. And so it's important that uh, church leaders are always on guard Because leadership is not something you can take a holiday from for five minutes. You need to be constantly watching, thinking, and praying. But Where is this church going? What do we need to be looking for now? Is something starting to spring up that we need to be careful about? And if you're not, then you can get into all sorts of trouble. I remember just after we moved down to Exeter um, um, years ago, we belonged to a a lovely little church in, in Swindon. And uh, it was a warm, warm fellowship with wonderful, wonderful people. But uh, they appointed a full-time worker just as, as we left. And uh, it didn't work out too well for to that full-time worker, partly because I think nobody was quite sure what they wanted a full-time worker for, and he hadn't worked out what he was going to be doing or where the limits of his authority were going to be and so on. And he passed on quickly. And I remember they came and, and talked to me about it and said, can we talk to you about, about uh, finding a new full-time worker? and what we should look for this time. And I'm not always, very rarely, right? But on this occasion, I think I was. I said to them, look, I don't think you need a full-time worker. What you need is to take up the burden yourselves for a while and work out what you're really looking for. And then when you know, then God will lead you to the worker that you need. And he said, no, actually we'd be good used to having somebody else do it, and so we think we should appoint a full-time worker. And so actually they appointed a guy who was a disaster. He split the church, there was immorality, including himself, uh, that, that, that caused all sorts of pains and hurts that still hadn't been healed many years later. And we still see many of those Christians, they're lovely Christians, they're warm people, they're good friends, and they will be for my lifetime. But they're all in Roman churches, because that church went downhill very, very quickly. Because the elders who had shepherded it for, for, for years were not exercising leadership any longer. And that can happen anywhere. So leaders need to know their limitations. They need to exercise their leadership. And third thing, you need to practice your love. I've said a lot about that in previous weeks, and uh, the clock's beaten us already, so I'm not going to say any more about it right now. But just to say that this is what Paul says, doesn't it? And the impact he left on them shows that he really had lived that way. Uh, They embraced him, they kissed him, and what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see him he'd become so dear to them he'd not just been a preacher he'd not just been a leader he'd not just been a planner and a pioneer he'd been one of their very best friends and if we want to God do things through us that's the way it's going to have to be and as this church gets itself back onto its feet after COVID is all over and all over well (laughs) but uh, as, as we move into a new phase anyhow of what's happening in a worldwide pandemic, and we're able to do a bit more together, those are the kind of priorities that we need to set. We need to listen to what Paul had to say as he avoided Ephesus. Let's just pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for the impact that the Apostle Paul made. We wouldn't be here unless he'd done the work he had. We realize that uh, Acts is not written so that we can put him or anybody else on a pedestal. It's written so that we can learn from his example. And so we pray as we go into a period of greater interaction with one another, greater openness in the world outside, you'll help us love one another and and lead one another and teach one another and encourage and nourish one another in all the ways the New Testament wants us to. We pray for our leaders who've got the toughest balancing act of the lot, and we pray for wisdom and grace for them and the willingness to give themselves. And uh, we pray for ourselves that we'll have appreciation of everything that they put in. And that you'll take this church and you'll help it flourish. And as the doors open up again, your word will go forth in new ways, not just in the words we speak, but in the very quality of our lives, so that people can see God is really with us. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.